Alex Carell is one of over 70,000 Google Career Certificate graduates. The Google Career Certificate program completely changed the trajectory of my life. I've always been interested in computers, but I never thought I could turn this into a career. Anytime I got a little break, I just pop open the course on my phone. That allowed me to have that path into a career that I'm passionate about. Train online for in-demand jobs in IT, UX design, data analytics, project management, and more. Visit grow.google/certificates. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Find the entertainment you love with Contour TV and Contour Stream Player. Learn more at cox.com/contour. Hope y'all are all ready to get in the pond because we are all about to be some silly gooses. Welcome to the Honey Hole Hangout. <laughs> that was the, my favorite one yes. so far. Oh, <laughs> well, welcome to Honey Hole Hangout, the podcast about hunting, fishing, and misadventures in the outdoors. I'm your host Landon here with Zach, Cliff, and Ian. And if y'all stay tuned to the end of the uh, episode, we have a really great interview that we did with steve ramirez about a book that he wrote about the texas hill country and so um honestly it's probably going to be better than we're going to be talking about for the next 45 minutes to an hour we wouldn't blame you if you skipped over this first part i would straight i would you would miss being the silly gooses that we are (laughs) that's true you would miss the silly goose part yeah but anyway where the interview is very good so if you yeah if you Make it to the end, yeah, because it is a fantastic interview. Yeah, especially this week, especially yeah. this week. Uh, if you guys like our podcast, y'all can leave us a review. It really helps us out. Um, and uh, we have cool stickers. Zach is actually in the process of creating stickers for our segments. That's right, Creature Watch is already mocked up. Do you have the digital version yet? Not yet, Not yet Not but yet. you have the hand hand drawn. Yeah. We saw it. It looks very cool. And so we're working on some more stickers, and you guys can find that type of person up there having a rave. Oh my gosh! So right now, to tell y'all what's going on, I'm looking out. We're in the garage, and I'm looking out at the building across the hallway, the parking lot, and there are literally strobe lights going off in this apartment. They know. They know we're podcasting. They're having a party for us. Yeah, they are. They're like, woo, honey hole. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> um, all right. But, yeah, go out, guys, go online, buy our stickers, leave us a review. It helps us out. Yep. And uh, stay tuned for the end of our podcast. And uh, we'll get straight into uh, – Ian, you said you had a sparkling water review for us this week? Oh, dude, I have the king of sparkling water reviews. Um, Tell us about it. Okay. My brother recommended this, my older brother. Shout out to Eric. What's up? Um, <laughs> hey, he Eric. bought, okay, this is called, check this out, Liquid Death Sparkling Water. I didn't know they did sparkling. And it's got like this, dude, I know, right? This looks alcoholic, but it's not. Yeah. Liquid Death Sparkling Water Reviews. This is a 16.9 out fluid ounces can, also known as 500 milliliters. <laughs> um this is from the Austrian Alps. I don't know if they mean the can or the water. I assume the water. Um, this is bottled in uh, Frankenmarkter, Austria. And 
it it's 16.9 ounces it's got like a black label with like a skull facing upward it's called liquid death i don't know why it's called liquid death Very and intense. the slogan is sparkling water murder your thirst <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing liquid death murder your thirst so what's what's the uh what's the flavor what's how's the profile going okay uh wait hold on i gotta read the side it says once cracked open, no thirst is safe from liquid death. After ritually dismembering its thirst victims, this brutal can of water used the severed body. Wow, okay. <laughs> severed body parts of dead thirst to build itself a flesh suit, which it used as a disguise. Okay, I'm not going to read the rest of this because it's really graphic. But uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and open this up. Okay, so let's, let's get it. Oh, that was disappointing, right? No, that was great. It's still it, pretty yeah. ASMR like. Had a good okay to it. It was exciting. All right. All right. Give it a sniff. Honestly, you're not getting a big flavor profile from there. Is it flavored or is it just carbonated water? I'm not it I'm not sure if it's flavored. Maybe well, it's maybe it's just carbonated water. Let's give it a sip. Yeah, I did, sorry, they're probably not going to sponsor us either. I don't know if it's flavored, but it is really satisfying. <laughs> Even after this, <laughs> I don't know if it's flavored. So, uh, I'll, oh, going in for sip number two. Okay. Okay. Comparing this against LaCroix or Waterloo, it's sparkling, but it's not too sparkling. Okay. Like, you know when you open a sparkling water, it just feels like you're inhaling a can of carbon dioxide? Yeah, it kind of burns your throat a little bit. Can you get... Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're here. Okay. Say it again? Yeah, go ahead, Ian. You're good. Okay. You know when you, uh, you know when sometimes you open a can of sparkling water, it just feels like you're inhaling a can of uh, carbon dioxide and there's like no water. Like it just hits you in the nose and like the mouth. This, um, it, it's not like that. It's a little more temper or temperate, I guess you would say. And so, so. <laughs> um, it's delicious. It's not really flavored, I would say, but it, it does taste really good. Very it tastes nice. really clean. I guess the Australian Alps have really clean water. Um, Very nice. All right. I'm mostly interested in the can. Apologies, listeners. Uh, we'll post the picture. Um, yeah. So that's kind of all I've got. Okay. So, very Thanks, nice. Ian. It's good though. Thank Most you. of the marketing definitely goes into the can and their marketing is on point. Very cool. All right. Now. We yeah. It. We're going to go into, uh, we are drinking uh, Balvini, the Balvini Ooh. Caribbean cask, 14 year scotch. It's a scotch that is extra matured in rum casks. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's probably going to be sweeter because of that. Yep. Yeah. Because I, I already took a sip and I was like, I like this more than like normal scotches because of its sweetness. It's good. I've actually tried this one before. I don't know. Maybe Gabe gave us this bottle. Not 100% sure. Cliff, do you know where we got this? I do not. I think Gabe did. But I have had that one before. It's it's really good. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Gabe. This is delicious. Mm. Mm. I could drink this all day. I'm going oh, straight four. Five? You mean? Four. Okay. Yeah, four. Yeah, I've had more than four, too. This is very, very good. It's probably the one of the best scotches I've ever tried. Yeah. Yep. 
And that's coming from a bourbon drinker, guys. So I know. All about the bourbon, but this is great. Cliff, did you try any or? No, I'm holding off tonight. How's your Coors Light? It was solid. Mm. Tastes like uh, the Colorado Rockies were calling. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Really at home with you. Let me uh, uh, go to our uh, Instagram questions. Um, uh, the first one, Corey asked us if y'all uh, y'all want to come fish white bass in the Waco area. It's going to heat up in February. Um, I don't know about the rest of the group. What I do know is I'm going to be in Waco in February for some training for a week. And so I will go fishing with you for white bass in the Waco area. So we'll, we'll connect, uh, before I go up there and, uh, get after some fishing. And then, uh, Carson said, uh, I want to hear an extra good Ian's words of wisdom tonight. So Ian, uh, the pressure's on. Uh, our listeners are looking for some wisdom. Have a very good words of wisdom. Yeah, very good. Uh, and then Josh asked, uh, would you consider beer a performance-enhancing drug for fly fishing? No. No, I think of it as a the 1% rule. No, it, it's a cornhole, invan- a cornhole performance enhancing. That's a good point. Yeah, but fly fishing, no. Yeah. No, but I do think of it as a 1% rule. Each beer you have, the better you are by 1% up until about the fourth beer, then it's a diminishing value. (laughs) (laughs) I like the equation. Yeah, that was good effort, Cliff. I do think... Although I disagree, I'm not going to argue because I like the premise. (laughs) I'm I'm not even disagreeing. I'm right there with you. I'll take it. What were you saying, Ian? I was going to say, I think when you're fishing... When you kind of, especially if you're like fishing salt or in a higher stress situation, sometimes having like a drink can relax you. Of course, you know, be responsible, be careful. But like I have seen people have like a beer, kind of take a deep breath, kind of sit back, relax for a little bit and then catch more fish. So I don't know if we could fully answer that question, but if you have to fall asleep on the skiff, it's probably not. You have probably had too much. Is that a story it's for true. another day, or is that a story you want to tell today? No, <laughs> no. no. notable. No. Um, we got a wood tip email, guys. Ooh, let me read it for y'all. Read it. No audio this week, although we do have a recommendation for wood tip. Uh huh. Um, he should send us a care package. I'd be interested to be see what was it, what would be inside <laughs> if we got a wood tip care package. Maybe it's full of Texaco knives. I have no idea. He buys us each a Texaco knife. <laughs> yeah, or what was the the customs the Orange County Chopper custom sunglasses? You know that you get in like the dollar store. I bet it has those. In it. it has to come from a gas station. Dude. <laughs> yeah, I bet you can find them. At a gas he ain't station, got no too. stores around him. Something tells me there's going to be Funyuns in that box too. I hope so. <laughs> Funyuns and Mountain Dew code red. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Email from Woodtip. Howdy, boys. Hope things are going well for you, okay, wherever you are. God willing, in the great state of Texas. Typical Tuesday morning for us here in the South, all right? We got things running like a well oiled machine around here, okay? No fooling. Got a beep on my phone. You boys got another radio episode out, but I ain't had a chance to give it a listen yet, okay? We getting them groceries. 
Speaking of oil, I sure wish you boys could hear these pump jacks running. It's just a nice sound first thing when we wake up, like a coyote howl or an owl hooting or your lady friend farting. (laughs) (laughs) Morning stuff around here, you know what I'm saying? Anyhow's. That Austin fella, y'all need to get him some ranch water. Had one of those northern Texas fellas bring me some, and they ain't too bad, okay? They don't come in no fancy flavors, but they got this nice little ingredient I like to call alcohol, okay? No fooling. That's a natural flavor we're sipping on right there. I heard uh, one of you boys say Texas ain't free. I mean, I don't know where y'all come from, but Texas is about the most free country in the United States. Okay, so that's it right there. No fooling. I guess I got a question for you boys up there, okay? What's your favorite part about Texas? You know, mine's the pump jacks, the endless supply of wild pig meat, and my uh, lady friend with her rousins early in the morning. She's reading these before I send them now, so I'm going to make sure your listeners know what a real South Texas woman is like. You know what I'm saying? Well, anyhow, you fellas have a great weekend. All right, get some wood tip. And he ended uh, by saying, you can do one of two things. You can shoot that pig or you can go hungry. I mean, really ain't never been a reason I've seen to starve a man. I like his question of what's her favorite part about Texas. I think that's a question that's well-deserved to answer. Yeah, I agree. Cliff, why don't you start? All right, so... Since you're the non-native... We'll dive into a couple different things with... With this, you get one. Well, it it, it, it depends. It, it builds. <laughs> well, it depends. It builds up. It's not like it, one thing will be my favorite thing about Texas, but yeah. it it builds up as to like my thought process and some stuff. So, as everyone knows who listens to us regularly or can sound here by my accent, I'm not from here. I'm from. Georgia originally moved here in 2016 and I've been here ever since. Um, and I honestly love Texas. If my family asks, Oh, do you ever plan on moving back or anything like that? And I say, I always tell them, I think about it because my family's there. But and it would have its benefits, but there's nothing drawing me necessarily back to Georgia. Whereas I feel a drawing to Texas. Mm-hmm. The amount of outdoor activities and the rich wildlife and hunting and fishing heritage that just exists in this state mm-hmm. from anywhere. You're located in Texas. If you just put in a little bit of effort, you can chase anything from whitetails to exotic species. From San Antonio, you can be fishing the southernmost trout fishery in the United States to fishing saltwater reds in the same day mm-hmm. if you really wanted to so one of the the thing one of the things that i just absolutely love about texas is the 
richness of wildlife that is offered to me here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say for me that, uh, I mean, I, I definitely have family ties here, but that's, um, I'm not going to use that as my answer of what I love about Texas. I think kind of to, to Cliff's sentiment, I love how much fishing opportunities we have here and variety of fishing opportunities. Um, I love Texas's history. I think it's super interesting. Um, and I, I really like the people that live here. Um, I've met all my friends here. Um, it's, you know, and, and I've lived in different cities in Texas. Um, and, you know, Lubbock kind of gets poo-pooed on because there's not much there. Um, as Ian and Zach know, but anyone that's ever lived in Lubbock says that they've absolutely loved living in Lubbock because the people that are there are just the nicest, friendliest. You're you're part of the family if you live in Lubbock. And so uh, I would have to say the people, I love the, the fishing that's here. I have family ties here and the hunting. Um, I, I don't think I'd, I can't see myself ever leaving. I'll go visit other places, but this is where I'm going to live. Yeah. What do you think, Zach? Um, for me, and it could be because of like our conversation earlier, but uh, as I've grown up in the hill country, right? Like since I was six years old, I've lived in San Antonio. My dad lived in Bernie. Uh, and I love visiting other places. I love visiting national parks and everything, but I love the hill country. And I love West Texas too. But uh, the hill country is just more, honestly, I think it's one of the most beautiful places. I've ever been, and um, I don't know. It's one of a kind. Tons of fishing, tons of hunting, but it's just a pretty place to drive. And I love doing the small town drives, like with my wife, where mm-hmm. we go visit like a small town in the Texas Hill Country. You can kill an afternoon at the park or like the the, the town square. You know, and every town is different. Every town has something to do, and uh, and then you can go fish. Like in the river that cuts mm-hmm. through the little town, and uh, that is hard to find in a lot of other places. I think, uh, I think another thing that is consistently overlooked to go with the wildlife diversity that we have here is the ecological diversity that we have in this state. I mean, you can have you have high desert. Well, we're country. basically half the size of the United States by ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but you have you have high desert country out mm-hmm. in West Texas. You can get snow up in North Texas. You have the coastline, which a lot of people here poo poo on the coastline Is of Texas until you go. Well, I'm not even talking. I'm talking about like just view. Enjoying it. Uh, so your your normal layman, um, they'll poo poo on it, saying that the Texas coast is ugly. I've been, I mean, yes, South Florida has pretty white sand beaches, but so does Texas to an extent in some areas. And everyone says like, oh, you start talking to them and they're like, oh, just Corpus Christi Beach. Well, it's a major metropolitan area right on Mm -hmm. the coastline. That's going to screw up the ecosystem there. So that's going to be a little bit dirtier, and it's going to be darker colored sand. But not all sand along other beach shores are yeah. white powdery sand. Right. 
uh, you go down to the National Seashore and you drive along the coastline, and it's not far before you can hit some of that white powdery sand and get your truck stuck if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really. And then you have the piney woods of East Texas, which is very similar to any of the pine trees that I hunted in Georgia and what I'm used to there. It's very, very diverse in the ecosystems that we even have here. Ian, what do you think? What's your favorite thing about Texas? Man, that's hard. Um, I'm not originally from here either, but I've been here half of my life, so I kind of grew up here. Um, I like the people a lot. Uh, people are kind and they're, they treat you like family and they're, they're just good hearted. Yes. You know, everyone is, we'll probably get one email from a listener who's like, no, that's not true. But just some of the best friends and just like most generous people I know and have ever, and friendly I've ever met have been here. Um, and then I like the landscape, man, like in South Texas, West Texas, um, you know, the hill country. Um, and it's just diverse, man. There's, it's, we're a big state. There's a lot of people. Um, and there's so much, there's so much opportunity just from every level. Economically, there's a ton of opportunity. There's a ton of opportunity to hunt and fish. There's a ton of opportunity to meet new people. Um, uh, try, you know, there's, we're very culturally diverse so that you can meet people from all over the world. You can meet, uh, there's a lot of great, oh dude, also the food. Um, uh, we go up to Colorado a lot and I'm just going to say this Colorado food is not great. (laughs) Like Texas, it's, it's not bad, but it's a lot of burgers and wings. Like, sorry, Colorado. Like it's a lot of like, very basic. Texas just, Texas, yeah, it's very big. Like, I'm sorry, Colorado. I'm just going to say this. Yeah, sorry, Colorado. Texas has amazing food, man, from brisket to Mexican food to Asian food. Like, we're a big food, you know, state, man. I love that. In general. Yeah. They just have big food. And as they say, everything's bigger here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We have the fastest highway speed limits in the country. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's an underlooked, that's a underlooked uh, point right there, Ian. That's right. Man, honestly, even, even when they do have speed limits posted, it is more of suggested speed. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, if you're not going five over, at, five over at least, yeah, people are mad at you. So I was on 130, and you can go 90 and not get pulled over because the speed limit's 85 crazy yeah so that's i also do like how like on some of the small smaller roads people will pull over on the shoulder and just kind of drive the shoulder to let you pass them instead of like clogging up the lane that's pretty nice yeah Yeah. um and texas parks and wildlife is great too i think they do a a great i think our i think our wildlife department like our wildlife officers our natural resource divisions and stuff like that is top notch and in my mind one of the best ones in the entire country. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, uh if you're not from Texas, we recommend you move here. So But remember what makes Texas great. Mm-hmm. That people don't move here. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying you gotta remember what makes Texas great and keep that mindset in it. Um 
All right. Uh, man, we got through questions and everything. Are you guys ready for some segments? Let's do some segments. Uh, who's who's up? I'll go first because I actually kind of, it'll take a little bit of time. Is that enough? You guys are here again? No, that's enough. Like half volume? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, welcome to uh, Cliff's Conservation Corner. Cliff's cool, <laughs> cool conservation, conservation corner. corner. C4. I got it again. So, so, so uh, <laughs> this week in the conservation, on the conservation desk, we're actually going to be talking about black bears again. Ooh. Or we're going to double dose, Cliff. Ursa, where was the... The actual name. Black Bear. No, it's bear like Ursa Americana or Americana Ursa or something like that. Is that the Latin? Yeah, that's the Latin name. Man, you're getting better at your Latin, Cliff. Well, the Bears one was pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, can say, I can say Americana and I know Ursa from Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> can you just take a compliment? Come on now. Nope. It depends. Uh, it depends. <laughs> but this one... We're going to stop talking about how great Texas is, and I'm going to start talking about how dumb California is. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And I'm sorry to our California listeners, but your state representatives and government there are, in my mind, I'm not from there, so I really don't get a say, but I'm going to shed some facts on you about something that's going on with black bear hunting in the state of California. So, as we talked last week, bear populations in Georgia seem to have been rising. Bear populations in Texas seem rising. Well, that trend also extends to California. Um, This article, um, I'll start with the article and then I'll go into uh, California's Department of, no, I'm going to do the California Department of uh, Natural Resources article and uh what they say about black bears um so the california department of fish and wildlife data indicates that california bear that california's bear population has increased in recent years black bears uh have been observed in areas where they have not been seen in 50 years Uh, Between 25,000 and 30,000 black bears are now estimated to occupy 52,000 square miles of California. Um, Section 1801 of Fish and Game Code establishes state policies regarding wildlife resources. The ultimate goal of this policy is to maintain sufficient wildlife populations. This includes black bears. uh, To accomplish the following goals. Goal number one, to provide the beneficial use and enjoyment of wildlife by all citizens of the state. Goal number two, to perpetuate all species for their intrinsic and ecological values. Goal number three, to provide for aesthetic, educational, and non-appropriative uses. Uh, Goal number four, to maintain diversified recreational uses of wildlife, including sport hunting, which that actually says including sport hunting. So keep that in mind. Uh, Goal number five, to provide an economic contributions for the citizens of the state through recognition that wildlife and renewable resources. And goal number six, 
to alleviate economic losses or public health and safety problems caused by wildlife. Also keep that in mind. The primary goal of uh, California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Black Bear Management Program is to maintain a viable and healthy black bear population. Biologists in California's Department of Nash, uh, Fish and Wildlife closely monitor uh, the black bear population by collecting teeth from hunters from teeth from hunters killed bears hunter killed bears um they count the rings in the teeth like they do trees and they can figure out the age and this is important because they can see um the average age and get a median age uh range for the bears um which kind of gives them a clue of like breeding and all this other stuff. Biologists also monitor the numbers of uh, deep depredation permits to determine the relative abundance of bears where they encounter people. So they do also monitor conflicts between bears and humans and where they tend to collide. So, without that being said, and that was from California's Fish and Wildlife Department, the Sacramento Bee, and this is an article that came out January 26th, 2000 and, or 2021, at 11.32 a.m. is when this article was published by the Sacramento Bee. Um, California would ban bear hunting under new legislation even as uh, wild population rebounds is the title of it, if anyone's interested. On Monday, State Senator Scott Weiner uh, introduced Senate Bill 252, the Bear Protection Act. Um, the, bear would ban, the bill would ban California sport hunting season that allows for 1,700 bears killed in the fall and early winter. Under the bill, bears would still be killed under the permit to protect, so you could still kill them to protect public safety, livestock, and for scientific research. Over the past few years, black bears have uh, faced unprecedented habitat loss due to climate change and wildfires, and continued sport hunting in California makes several or survival and even tougher climb. Weiner said in a new release announcing the bill, it's time to stop the inhumane practice once and for all. Uh, Weiner cited public opinion polls showing that the majority of Californians support the ban and hunting bears on hunting bears, and he urged that the hunting has... He argued that hunting has no effect on the population sizes near communities where bear conflicts are common. Around Lake Tahoe, bear populations have grown to some of the largest densities in the country. And bears have aggressively, uh, have been aggressively breaking into vacation homes and attacks on people have happened from time to time. The bill's introduction comes as California's statewide bear population has more than doubled in the past four decades. Uh, black bears are not endangered. State officials estimate, it, estimate that in 1982, the statewide bear population was between 10,000 and 15,000 bear, bears. The black bear population now conservatively estimated to 
is conservatively estimated to be between 30,000 and 40,000. Uh, California, California's, <clears throat> sorry, California's limited bear hunting season has had no impact on the statewide population growth. In 2011, with bear populations growing, the state proposed increasing the state's annual harvest quota to 2,000 bears, but the plan was scuffled after fierce opposition from the state's influential parade of environmentalist and animal rights activists. The hound hunt, uh, so then it goes into hound hunting. A hound hunting ban was placed in effect in 2013 and dramatically reduced the numbers of bears uh, killed by hunters in California. California is not hitting hunting quotas. The way California's bear season works is it's an unlimited number of licenses. Hunters are allowed to buy for $49.42. It's a $50 permit known as a bear tag. If they kill one, hunters are required within one business day to bring the skull to the depart to a Department of Fish and Wildlife office to have the head examined by a state biologist. If hunters hit the if hunters hit the seventeen hundred quota, the season is immediately canceled before its late December end date. So, uh, hmm. if Say day one of opening, opening day, seventeen hundred bears are killed. That season lasted one day. It okay. doesn't extend to which I I kind of get that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the whole argument with conservation, right? Like that's why there's <coughs> tag limits is because of that. Right. Um, since the ban on hunting black bears with hounds, the state's hunters haven't come close to hitting the seventeen hundred bear kill quota. Last year, the season ended on December twenty seventh. With the state's uh, with the state's thirty thousand bear tag holders killing just nine hundred and nineteen bears, so vastly under quota, or really about half, mm -hmm. roughly, a little over half. <clears throat> bear tags generate about one point one point three nine million dollars in revenue money goes to big game management fund which supports habitat preservation for bears and other species including deer elk pronghorn antelope and bighorn sheep so that's kind of where it's at so when i started this article i said california's nonsense stupidity in it because to me <clears throat> they have this problem of growing bear populations and hunters do have a role in conservation. Hunters are the number one funders of most conservation efforts in the country, on a state level, at a local level. <coughs> and a lot of that is placed on us by ourselves, by choosing in the past to pay excise taxes such as Pittman Robertson and um, Dangle Johnson through fishing equipment. Mm -hmm. Also by buying the licenses themselves is how it's all funded. So the state of California would be, according to this ar article, giving up $1.39 million in revenue 
to cancel bear hunting, which they could use for other conservation efforts. Bear hunters are only killing, as we said, roughly half the quota, a little over half the quota of bears. So it's not really making a dent. And the populations are blowing up to to an extent. I mean, going from 10,000 to 30,000 in 30, 40 years. I mean, that's a lot of bears coming up. As you were reading your article, I was trying to think of a way to play devil's advocate. Um, But... Well, I can play devil's advocate. Well... Because, like, I mean, people are always going to be slightly against things that are cute. Right? Like, bears... Yeah, but that's, to be honest, like it would not surprise me if in twenty years it's illegal to kill a bear anywhere, just because of like you post a picture of a deer or a wild hog. Most people don't really care, but you post a picture of a bear, and the way they are put in movies or TV shows or anything else, people have a feeling about that. Same reason why when you see a you're lion. you're arguing from an emotional standpoint sure. in it that what, has zero logic or anything to do with true conservation. You can't say because this animal is cute. Because you know who else is cute? Deers are cute. They are. For Rabbits sure. are cute. For sure. All these other things that we fit, find and do and hunt and kill and put food on the table with, right. which that's what these hunters are still doing too. I'm sure there are some trophy in it, right? but people do eat bear meat, whether you want to admit it or not, people do eat it. So it is a lifestyle for sure of way of putting food in it. So I think by putting the anthropomorphification of because the bear is cute because this and that, that is a nonsensical argument to me right no i totally i get see it. where you're coming from playing that devil's advocate right, in right. it but that is not an argument that i will ever respect coming from For sure. anyone or it's also but like it's also the argument that you know the only reason why we even have to manage predator populations is because we say we do you know we we declare we can manage them that way hunters can hunt them and again devil's advocate but there's a lot of people talking now that you know at least when it comes to predators if we just kind of let them be and don't hunt them, like, they will be fine. That's know? not true, though, because in other states such as, I believe it was in New Jersey, they canceled bear season or kill, ended bear hunting in that state. I, like I said, I believe it's New Jersey. I'm not 100% right, right. sure, so don't quote me on the state. But now they are having... It was Rhode Island. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Now they are having... Well, you said that, and I was like, well, was it? Because it was one of those New England-style states. And now they are having problems with bears coming into residential neighborhoods, getting into trash cans, eating people's pets, and all this other stuff. Now you want to play the devil's advocate of, it's because they're cute. What's cuter? Your dog that you name Fluffy and you carry around oh, in yeah, a purse? Sure. Or that bear that you have no tie to? <clears throat> for sure. Well, I think, and I hope I heard this right in your article, but one thing that you said was that they're, one of the reasons they wanted to cancel bear season is that, uh, let me gather my thoughts, um, that hunters aren't having an effect on reducing the bear populations. Was that something that was said? They call it that they're claiming the hunters aren't having an effect on reducing the bear population. Right. And so the, then the numbers, why would that matter if they're 
why are you going to take away something that is in your, you know, wildlife department creed um, or goals? Why are you going to take that away if it's having no effect on reducing the population, because which think, isn't an issue? I, I think what it does is it goes to Zach's devil's advocate argument it is the anthropomorphication of black bears. Mm-hmm. People do think that they're cute. People think bear Winnie the Pooh. And that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. Anytime you start anthropomorphi- anthropomorphizing, which if you don't know what that means, it means giving human characteristics to non-human creatures. Mm-hmm. So to sit there and say, this bear thinks, feels, acts, looks, whatever like humans do, because I saw one growing up that wore a red t-shirt and had all these other animal friends that does nothing for conservation. And what's going to happen is even taking out the predator aspect of this conversation of saying, if we just leave it alone, people say, what was it you said exactly, Zach? Uh, with what? And what? Along the lines of um, predators would just maintain themselves. Yeah. Well, because the theory is then like hunters are declining, right? Like on the whole, <coughs> hunters year over year are, are getting older and less and less people are doing it. Right. So eventually, right, if we have a mindset of we have to have hunters to manage the population, eventually that model is going to be unsustainable. But so I don't think that to, the number of hunters will ever hit zero unless it's completely outlawed. Right. It won't ever hit zero, but it will hit a point where hunters controlling the population will not be effective. But it is a still a form of population control. To some of extent, these. yes. But the, 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 the reason why I bring that up is If you the, didn't have hunters in there, there would be 919 more bears in the state of California. Right. But then the theory is, though, as, as hunters decline... Right. Instead of focusing on we need to manage the population to have this amount that hunters can kill, then you have a balanced ecosystem that involves the prey, the predators, where everything eventually goes together because managing it for hunters is not going to be the way it is 100 years from now because hunters aren't going to have this huge resurgence where everybody's hunting again. That's just not I disagree happen. because in order to truly say that, you'd have to take the human element out of it completely. You'd have to say that it's not only no hunters, there's no humans involved at all because what's going to happen is because we're not stopping building. We're still encroaching on their territory and their native lands. So there's always going to be conflict between bears and humans. Now, you have a population of bears, and it gets so dense that the bears have to move out. Because each of those, say, 919 bears, say half of them were sows, and each one of those sows got pregnant and had two cubs each, then you've just doubled that amount right there on its base. Eventually, the area that they're in cannot sustain it and those bears have to move out now not only are those bears in that area not being able to sustain themselves but and moving out they're not being able to sustain sustain themselves and eat properly so what ends up happening is what what, what are they going to eat when they move out they can't live off trash and right but what happens is and i'm not just talking about bears or predators at this point i'm talking about wildlife in general like every day for a month and that was trash (laughs) animals animals in general 
any type of wildlife, eventually the population in an area gets so dense that there is nothing for them to eat and they literally starve to death. Right. Hunting and killing these animals and honoring that animal for what it is and making it food for yourself is by far the most noble death that you can give this animal because otherwise it is going to suffer. Now, taking an an ethical shot and killing that animal and utilizing its meat in whatever way, or even if you're a trophy hunter, utilizing it and honoring that story that the animal brought to you and living that there, that is more, to me, honorable oh, for sure. and noble for the animal and taking way more care of the animal. Plus, then you're getting the taxation dollars to do other things to build better habitat for these animals. For sure. Because what are catering, the t- catering to a dying population eventually will run out. So I you, think at, the, at some point you have to start thinking not – five years ahead, not 10 years ahead, but we have to start thinking 100 years down the line. If trends keep happening the way they are, and there isn't a research Well, then all hunters, these animals will die tragic deaths of starving sure, to death. For sure, but maybe, maybe there's something to do in the meantime before that happens, right? Again, what, 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 honestly, think about it. We as humans have our, the way that we think and do things and operate, but what do animals truly operate off? They operate off of instinct. Now, even as the three, four guys in this garage, if we left everything to our base instinct, mm-hmm. what are the two to three main things we want to do? Eat, sleep. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, animals think on those exact same terms uh-huh. all they want to do is eat sleep and breed uh-huh. so they're not managing their own population there is no cvs or walgreens that they can go buy okay. bear condoms okay. at. i get it we get it, <laughs> we get it. But, oh my gosh that is the by far the best quote ever they, it, so you can't say that eventually oh it'll figure itself out that's not the case that is kind of how it works, though. I mean, like, if you have, like, an ecosystem that's stable, then essentially, like, everything... But then, like I said, like, you yes, have there, to take... There are trends. There you are have trends. to take the humans out of it completely. For sure. Yeah, and that's would. Not, exactly. so, so then you're arguing, all right, well, then let's genocide humans. No, it's so not Because, because, because it's not like that at, at that point, that's what... You can either have... The human population here, or you can have the wildlife population here, but they're not going to co-mingle necessarily. You're not going to have vast number of wildlife populations in downtown San Antonio or in San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Atlanta, D.C., or these areas. Dense urban population areas where we have all of our creature comforts that we're not going to give up. You... Landon, me, Ian, any of our listeners, not going to give up. Uh-huh. You can't have that and the sustainable ecosystem that you're saying would need to be provided for it to even out and regulate these bear populations. No, but I'm not expecting you know downtown San Antonio to be an oasis. You know, I'm talking about places like Big Ben or Yosemite, right? These places that have a natural protection around them, right? If we keep it that way, we don't sell it to people. Then those areas have the opportunity to become stable, right? Yes, but there's always going to be a dominant animal there that runs rampant. Right. 
But I mean, like, not really though. If we're not killing, I mean, if we're not killing we're not the killing bears, the bears in, are going to kill the deer. We're not killing anything in. Uh, we're not killing anything in Big Ben right now, and populations are stabilizing. Right? Populations aren't stabilizing. Populations, according to last week's are article, growing. are growing. Right, the bears are growing. Right, but they're returning to a healthy population for them for that environment. That's from being a, a severely diminished population due right. to market hunting and other stuff like that. Right. <laughs> right. They, so they killed them off, essentially. Market and, hunting, not sustainable right. conservationist hunting that the North American wildlife model of conservation is built around on and around now. Right, but... This episode is brought to you by the NHL on TNT. When it comes to hockey, the Stanley Cup playoffs are built different. Experience the intensity and insanity on the ice and off it from now through June on TNT and TBS. Get ready for seven game rounds of knockdowns, dragouts, pressure, and agony as teams go head-to-head without ever letting up. The Stanley Cup playoffs are known for more than just a few cracked ribs and black eyes. Pushing through the pain is the name of the game. With so much edge-of-your-seat action, you'll refuse to shave or change your jersey. Don't say we didn't warn you. Ready to feel the rush? Watch the Stanley Cup playoffs now on TNT and CBS. This episode is brought to you by Cox Contour TV. Sometimes it's hard to decide what to watch, but Cox Contour TV helps make that decision easier. Enjoy live TV, on-demand programs, DVR recordings, and music all in one place. And only with the sound of your voice with the Contour Voice Remote. Plus, catch the golf and basketball action you've been waiting for on the Contour Sports app. Learn more at coxcox.com slash contour. The irony of it is we remove people from hunting that area, and then that area is now reaching, and it's growing back to its optimum level of animals in the whole area but you're arguing from a diminished state versus a state of it being rampant and growing and booming and having these dense populations the article itself in california around around lake tahoe uh bear populations have grown to be some of the largest densities in the country uh, and they have had aggressively have been aggressively breaking into vacation homes and attacks on pe- people have happened from time to time. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine like a couple from so, LA arguing, like a bear, arguing, like breaking in? Arguing <laughs> happened in the Smokies. I agree with you. Arguing from a standpoint of diminishedness, taking the hunters out and letting these populations grow naturally funding mm-hmm. habitat restoration monitoring them that does help but once these animals get to a certain status then they start overpopulating themselves and they can literally eat everything up and starve to death right in it and having hunters there to mitigate and cut it helps that and helps to mitigate it right okay so my last point because we do need to move on because we're <laughs> definitely running out of time my last point i'll make is um yes if that were to be the case it would be bad for a short while but theoretically it would even itself out would for a few years in probably 20 30 years would there be bears 
being emaciated and starving to death, yes. Would there be an abundance of deer when that happened? Yes. But theoretically, if the ecosystem could sustain it, it would return to a very natural state where the animal populations would be equal. Granted, there would be ups and downs, but it would return to a state of, uh, of natural, you know, just being normal or where it was. Right, but I think... But yes, it would be a ton of hurt before to get to that point. And, I and think, that's my last point. I think the only way that that could happen is you have to take the humans out of it in its entirety. Or, yes. Now, states like the areas... <laughs> you would have to remove the humans, yes. Na- natural natural point. parks and stuff like that... Have removed the human element. Have removed the human element, and they can eventually get to a sustained level. But you see these national parks and other, or state parks, really, rather, here in Texas, that do end up opening up stuff to hunting to mitigate some of these populations, Mm -hmm. which I think would eventually happen in some of these areas, like Big Bend, when that bear population or whatever gets to the the point that they need it to be. Okay. I think we're going to end there. Yeah, we have to go on. Um. I've never seen you so fired up before, Cliff. <laughs> I don't know what to say. He's going to stew on this to, one for a bit. I know. I know. I've been trying to get uh, Cliff fired up on to get passionate about something on the podcast for it a while. Did the get him night, guys. And boy, w- Cliff got fired up. So. We're going to put it in the dip. <laughs> oh, okay, man. I'll go next. My articles are short. On patrol. Um, All right. I have two very short articles. They go hand in hand with each other. Uh, Operation Back Road is the name of this operation. This was in New York. Um, It was an operation set up to target poachers specifically and to catch poachers. What they did is uh, they set up 147 robotic deer decoys to help catch poachers and other violators. After a combined 300 hours, roughly 19 people were caught shooting at the decoys from the roadway, resulting in 37 misdemeanor charges and 29 additional violations of environmental conservation law, as well as seven charges outside the convert, uh, uh, outside the laws. Um, and during the 2020 fall hunting season, uh, Operation Black Buck uh, issued more than 244 tickets for road hunting-related offenses. And so basically, so some states are utilizing robotic deer. They're setting up on the road, basically, to see who's going to drive by and shoot at them. Yeah, they've been doing that for a few years Have now. They? I hadn't heard about they that do before. It in, they do it here in Texas as well. That's a pretty smart... It's a pretty smart idea. Yeah. Now, the robotics uh, instance of it is fairly new in the scheme of things, but used to, you know, those 3D archery targets mm-hmm. of like deer. They used to set those up and uh, people would watch those and yeah. then do it based off that. Um, my second article uh, is more of a specific guy, and this was in Kentucky. Officials used robot deer to catch man accused of poaching. And basically what had happened is James Malone um, was suspected to have poached a deer out of season. And so the officials in Kentucky set up like a sting operation to try to specifically catch this guy, and it worked. Um, they caught him using a spotlight, an artificial light, um, <laughs> um, which is illegal in Kentucky for deer hunting. 
and uh, basically caught him in the act of poaching. Um, he had also previously been hunting without a license, killing deer and never reporting it. Um, the rest report also states that they found methamphetamines when they searched the 29-year-old uh, in Kentucky. Um, he was charged with spotlighting, possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of controlled substance, illegal taking or pursuing of deer or wild turkey, hunting or trapping without a license or permit, and littering per Taylor County online booking records. Littering and... <laughs> littering and... But, yeah, I didn't know they were doing that. That, is, that was super fascinating to me. I, that think they're using, I think there's even an episode of Lone Star Law where they have one set uh, up. I've seen some, but I haven't seen... Um, I haven't seen that episode specifically where they use that. Now, like I said, I think the robot one is fairly new. I don't know when they started using that. But used to, they would set up those 3D targets and have someone watching it or have a cam mm -hmm. set up and then bust people that way. Yeah. Like catch the license plate or something that mm -hmm. they were driving by. Yeah. That's that's cool. All right, Zach, you ready to go? Or Ian. Or Ian. We haven't heard from Ian in a while. Ian, you ready? Oh, sorry. It keeps cutting out. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> you guys there? Yep. We're going to play your sound clip. Okay. All right, you're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> he has no clue. And it's hilarious. Dude, you guys could be playing like ratchet sound clips. <laughs> Every time it's Every time like until the podcast comes out. Um, this is kind of cool. This is a more serious one. This is from Mongabi or news.mongabi.com, which I believe is a international uh, uh, publication. This is um, titled, this was published on January 20th of 2021, so about a week ago. Um, Big Cat Comebacks, Jaguars Prowl, Argentina's Iberia Wetlands After 70 Years. So, basically, um, the Iberia Wetlands are about 1.3 million hecta acres, which is like 3.2 million acres of uh, this is from the article, and this is paraphrasing, uh, of tracks, swamps, waterways in Argentina's uh, Coriana's province. Um, and so basically they released, this happened two weeks, so this is from a week ago, and this is two weeks ago. So three weeks ago, they released a mother and her two cubs, um, which are jaguars, and they're starting to... Uh, roam free so they basically did like a successful reintroduction of uh these jaguars and you can see the video um there was a quote from somebody that said for us it is incredible seeing these animals leaving the pen in the video and leaving their footprints in the middle of the iberia wetlands we've had the opportunity to spot them twice already free in the park it's an incredible accomplishment for us um this is a direct quote. Jaguar populations used to sprawl across the Americas, ranging from southwestern United States all the way down to Patagonia in southern Argentina. But the species um, was mainly or mostly eradicated uh, down to, I think it says 40%. I'm probably going to get these numbers all wrong. <laughs> um, basically, they, there was a lot of jaguars and they lost a lot of their territory and they're starting to reintroduce them, mm. um, which is really exciting. And so they released this mother and her cubs and they've adapted back into being in the wild, which I think is a win for conservation. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, That's pretty neat, Ian. 
So it's kind of cool. Like it's kind of a happy story, right? Like these people have been working on reintroducing jaguars, and they're adapting back into the wild, and that's a win for conservation. Oh yeah, so it's always exciting. Cool. Yeah. All right, Zach, we're ready for Creature Watch. Here we go. All right, guys. So. Thank you to our listener who sent in that list because I'm still going through them. This is the last one from the list, though. So if you have any other ideas, please send them in. Today I'm talking about the Hodag. The Hodag? Have you guys heard about it? Mm-mm. Spell it for me. H-O-D-A-G. And I really a story special once I found some of the facts, and I think you guys will too. Uh, okay. So, it was first found in Rhinelanden, mm. northern Wisconsin. And what year do you guys think was the first time we found it? A hodag. Um, 2010. Okay. <laughs> uh, 1947. Okay. Cliff, what do you think? In Wisconsin? Yep. 1956. Ooh. It was... 1893. Oh, wow. So this predates our rule by like at least 100 years. Yeah. So it's really crazy. Like, have you guys seen Ghostbusters, the original? Yeah. You know, like the weird demon dog things? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what they look like. They have the head of a frog. They have the grinning face of a giant elephant, uh, thick, short legs with huge claws, the back of a dinosaur, and then it has this long tail with spears that are jetting out the end of it. Now, reports uh, instigated, or the first time it was ever found, was by the well-known prankster of northern Wisconsin named Eugene Shepard. And uh, he actually took a photo to the paper and sent it across the, the state, and it was a charred version of this monster, with reporters calling it the most fiercest strangest most frightening monster to ever put its claws on earth hmm. and nothing really happened for a couple of years right nobody really saw it but three years later in 1896 uh, Eugene found one alive and he caught it by convincing a group of bear wrestlers to put a chloroform rag on the end of a 10 foot pole and wait, shoving wait, hold up a group <laughs> a group of bear wrestlers yes, i'm surprised nobody had a reaction to you yet yes a group of bear wrestlers they went out to the woods with a 10 foot pole put a piece of chloroform rag at the end of it and shoved it down into his cave until they heard snoring <laughs> seems to me like they've done this before <laughs> So after it fell asleep, they went in and got it, right? Now, this is my favorite part of the whole story. Better than the chloroform rag down their cave. Better than the chloroform <laughs> rag. Guess where he displayed this? At the county fair. At the county fair. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what? It paid, cost $5 to get in the tent. $5 back then. So it cost $0.10. Cents <laughs> and you got the back entrance to the tent to see the hodag <laughs> and the best part is he took wires and attached it to the hodag's body 
And whenever people paid their 10 cents, he'd go behind the curtain and pull on the on the wires to make the monster move. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly how the Chippecabra thing is, too. Oh, it's probably just like that. And I guess when, when you go screaming out because the monster scares you, he comes back around. He tells you, oh, it's okay, it's okay. I'll go calm him down. He goes back into there, but you're not allowed at that point. He changed his clothes into clothes that were all ripped up, and then he came back out and was like, it kind of worked, guys. <laughs> it kind of worked. Uh, so eventually, scientists from across the world and across the nation kind of heard about this. So uh, scientists from the Smithsonian in D.C. heard about it and traveled there to check this out. So... They paid their 10 cents, they get in the back, and they find out that it's just a hoax. That Eugene Shepard just was pranking everybody once again. And I'll get you, <laughs> Eugene! <laughs> uh, so yeah, so now the Hodag is the, uh, like the town's creature. It's the mascot of the local high school. Oh, they, yes. Yep. They have a Hodag County Festival every year. And... Uh, yeah. Wait, what state is this? Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's the story of the Hodag. It's beautiful. That is awesome. Everything. <laughs> Can that's, you imagine someone telling that to like their grandkids? Like back then, your your uh, great uncle and I were uh, in this. We were part of a group of bear wrestlers. <laughs> I would have been like, "Yes, <laughs> best story ever." I'd have been like, "Shut up, Grandpa, and go take your pills." <laughs> Oh man, that's great, Zach. Yeah, Hot Dog is pretty great, and especially the whole county fair loop around. Oh, since we've man. been joking about that since I want to hear early days. I want to hear the like fight songs for the fighting Hodags. <laughs> right? What are they singing about? <laughs> we are the Hodags. Yep, exactly. Oh man, that's great. Well, our uh, next segment is our interview. Is our interview? So. Uh, Stay tuned and listen Stay to our conversation. Stay tuned and listen to our conversation, conversation with, with Steve. Steve. Yep. All right, guys. We are really excited to have uh, Steve Ramirez on our podcast. I think all four of us have been looking forward to this one for a while since we started talking to Steve. Um, and uh, he wrote a book called Casting Forward Fishing Tales from the Texas Hill Country. Um, and. Uh, we're here to talk to him about his book. Um, and before I do that, I just want to kind of read his bio for y'all uh, because you can find his writing in a lot of magazines. So uh, Steve Ramirez is an outdoor and conservation author who lives and writes in the Texas Hill Country. His work has appeared in various journals, including Trout Magazine, The Fly Fish Journal, American Angler, Fly Fisherman Magazine, Tail Magazine, Texas Sporting Journal, Explore Magazine, Under Wild Skies, and many more. He's a certified Texas Master Naturalist and is an avid angler, hiker, and world adventure traveler. His book, entitled Casting Forward, Tales of Fishing in the Texas Hill Country, was released by Lions Press in November of 2020. Its sequel, Casting Onward, Adventures in Search of America's Native Fish, will be released by Lions Press in late 2021. Uh, Steve, we're really excited to have you. That sounded really formal. <laughs> Thanks for saying all that. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited to be here. 
Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So we're going to, we'll, we'll start off by, uh, we, we always ask our guests two questions. Yep. Um, the first question is how did you start fly fishing? Uh, poorly. Who doesn't? Right. So, uh, I, I taught myself and that tells you everything right there. But I figured once I was catching fish and not hooking myself, I was doing pretty well. Um, no, I've been fly fishing for, wow, I guess it's 20 years now. And, uh, it's something that I, I think you all know that once you start fly fishing, it kind of ruins you for other things. <laughs> so, yeah. and, uh, it is a bit addictive and it definitely has saved my life. So, uh, I started about 20 years ago. I fished the Texas Hill country almost, uh, exclusively during that time, sometime in the Caribbean. But since then I have been a lot of different places. Awesome. Uh, casting just as poorly in every <laughs> area. Well, the great so. thing is your casting can always improve. I don't think anybody, even some of the best casters would say that they couldn't get better at casting. So now, just so you know, I am really picking on myself. There are days where I just look brilliant. <laughs> but then someone but then someone pulls up with their family of four on the bridge to watch me and that's when I hook a tree. <laughs> it's always the pressure gets to you. Um and and our other question is what's your most memorable fish? Wow. That's a question you ask everyone. The most memorable fish. Yeah, you do, yeah. That's that's a, that's a tough one. I'm going to say, and this is going to seem so odd to y'all, but um, it's not the size of the fish for me. It's the place and the experience. And uh, in writing the second book, I spent some time out in the deserts of southwest Idaho going after red band trout in these little tiny streams. And, I, I, you know, I could have picked Gila. I could have picked a lot of others, Apache. But that, that, that trout was pretty amazing. And they're, they're small. The ones I'm catching were small. So that's my answer. A little red band trout in the middle of the desert that should have no chance to live there. Yeah. I'm always rooting for the underdog. Yeah, yeah. that's that's awesome. You're you're making me want to make a trip out there. Really, I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I should have said my favorite <laughs> fish. So you mean which one did I catch? But my favorite fish in the world has got to be the Guadalupe bass, of course. That's oh, hard yeah. to beat. Yeah. It's hard to beat. I think it's it's the Texas State fish. I mean, that's right. it. It's yeah, done. Just something yeah. about it. So strong. Yeah. So like it's just like not the biggest fish, but man, it was just it's it's, so much fun. No, once you've caught Guadalupe bass, it's it's done. That's it. I yeah. kind of feel sorry for all the rest. Yeah. Oh man, there's spots too. I don't know. There's just something about it. I'm right there with you, man. Like Guadalupe bass, probably one of my favorite fish. It's just. Well, no. And most people in the hill country believe it's like this little secret here, you know, <laughs> this little great. secret here. And then, you know, uh, that no yeah, one else really knows that. about. I kind of let the secret out. <laughs> <laughs> and people want to travel all over to come fish the Guadalupe, fish so, the Guadalupe bass. Yeah. More power to them. Um, it's a really tough question, you know, because once you do a lot of fishing, everyone, everything you catch has got something special about it, yeah, whether it be a definitely. bonefish in the Caribbean or um, they all have something really amazing about them. Right. Story for all of them. Have you always been a writer? 
Uh, yes, actually. I think I started writing when I was a kid because I couldn't help it. So I, I write because there's no way I could live without it. I, I would say fly fishing and writing, I can't live without. Yeah. Well, let me change that. Fly fishing, writing, pizza, wine, and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> man, that's oh, a man, great list. <laughs> Don't talk to Ian about coffee. Uh, he, he drinks like, what is it, like 10, 11, 12 cups a day? No, no, it's like four or five. <laughs> 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 Longest is good. Oh, <laughs> is all, good coffee is. Yeah. Oh, that's a good list, though. I'm kind of hey. pretty jealous about that. I can, you know, I can take those. Five I know we're not talking fishing going. now, but it's the same thing. It's the best things in life. Yeah. Right. Definitely. That's, uh, you, that's a lot of what these stories are. Right. Do you consider yourself a fly fisherman first or an author first? I would have to say I'm a writer that fly fishes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so uh, I love it that I'm going to be forever a beginner. You know, and if I was the best fly, fly fishing caster, catcher in the world, I would still say I'm forever a beginner. Yeah. So um, uh, I love that. But I'm I'm a writer first. So when you say that, when you uh, you say you're always a beginner, like why why does that resonate with you? Well, first of all, um, I, I had sh- shared earlier when we were just having some offline discussion that some part of my background was in the Marine Corps and in martial arts. And I, I really learned there that a beginner's mind is the way to go in everything you do. Yeah. Uh, it, it just keep learning, keep learning. As soon as someone tells me they know a lot, I know that they don't know much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I know enough to know I know nothing. Yeah. No, and I- that keeps it exciting. That's that's awesome. I live uh, kind of by like a philosophy of like try everything at least once because like it could be your new favorite thing. And I feel like that kind of comes with the, like starting things or like always being a beginner at something is like so exciting. And there's so much to that. And you can always grow and keep going and gaining more experiences to share with others. So that's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great things about fly fishing. You never learn enough. Right. There's a new species. And the river is always changing. The salt flat is always changing. Mm -hmm. There's always another species. Sure. Yeah. And, and we changed too. Oh yeah. We changed, we changed too. I've, I've flown all around the place to catch fish. And then I caught nothing and I still had a great trip. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah. It's all good. So I hope I did okay on the first two questions. <laughs> no, I, no, those I, I really were great. Did, You're doing I great. really didn't answer it. out the gate with those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so what inspired you to write a fly fishing book? Well, I'm going to answer that question in a roundabout way, which is what I do all the time. Okay. <laughs> so that is, if you read the forward on casting forward, it was done by a dear friend of mine, Ted Williams, who is a conservation writer that many of you may have read mm-hmm. when, when with various magazines. And when I read the forward that he wrote, uh, I, I almost choked up a little bit and I thought he got it. So I write stories with fishing and hunting and things like this in and various adventures, but it's not a fishing story. So I'm writing, when you read this, I hope you feel like you're on the fishing trip with me or you're there yourself without me. I hope that the reader is feeling the pull of the water. I hope they're, they're seeing the deer. They're having the whole experience. But I also hope that uh, they're getting more out of these stories. 
because there is a lot more embedded in there. Uh, and I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, uh, but I wrote this book because it was time. Yeah. Mm. And I've done a lot of writing prior to that, but this was fly fishing has definitely saved my life mm. and the Texas Hill Country. Yeah. No doubt about it. And as you know, I don't hide in this this book that I have dealt with PTSD for decades. And I thought it was important to get that out because there's a lot of people down that road. Yeah. It's really important for them to hear, it's okay, you're going to be fine. And get out in nature, you're going to be better. Yeah. And hang out with good people. So I'll say something else to share this with yeah. you. I have found through fly fishing and outdoor activities, hunting, fly fishing, I meet the best people on earth yeah. always. And especially now we need to meet some of the best people on earth. Yeah. Um, what, what do you love most about the Texas Hill Country? Because I know in book two you travel a lot, but particularly right. what, what grabs you to the Hill Country? I'm really glad you asked that because it helps me answer the last question a little better than I did. Because <laughs> the other reason I wrote this book, so I told you I wrote this book because it was time. I wrote this book because I was walking away from a life that I'd had for 30 years and happy to do it. I wrote this book for those reasons, but I also wrote it because I wanted to write, as I said in the forward, an ode to the Texas Hill Country. I love this place. And I think a lot of us are probably afraid of what's going to happen to it if we're not careful. Yeah. Um, I love these rivers, these canyons. We call it the Texas Hill Country because somebody decided to call it that in Austin. Because it <laughs> sounds good for tourists. It's really, a can it's really a canyon country. Yeah. And canyons are from rivers. And people don't realize that we've got rivers and streams all over the place here that are crystal clear. And you think it's two feet deep and you fall in, it's four feet deep. Yeah. Um, so I also wrote the book because of that. So what do I love about the Hill Country? This place is an island like no other, surrounded by scrub and prairie and cotton fields. And you can drive for hours in each direction. And this place was spared by the glaciers. And it's a really special place. And culturally, it's a special place. And I thought that the only way I'm going to get people to want to save this place is to get them to care for it. Yeah. So that's the other reason why. So uh, what I love about the Hill Country, everything. I love the culture. I love the music. I love the food. I love the streams, the wildlife. There's some things I could love better. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what I mean. If we stop messing it up, you know, yeah, yeah. keep it. Keep it clean. Keep it clean. Keep it beautiful the way it is. I'd like to see us have more of a outdoor economy here. Get yeah. more pe people to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, you said so you want to hear people or you want to see people care for it. Um, outside of like you know getting outside and just you know the the stuff we can do, picking it up, making it stay pristine. What else do you envision as how we as outdoorsmen and other people can care for it? Well, the first thing is we need to pay attention ourselves. One of the things I love about fly fishing is it makes you pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Other kinds of fishing, your mind can wander off maybe, but with fly fishing, you have to pay attention. You're, you're in motion. 
you're in motion with the river or the ocean or wherever you're at. Um, and if you pay attention, you start noticing. I really like to see all outdoors people, hunters, anglers, pay more attention to the place they say they love because you're going to notice the changes. Uh, if you notice the changes, you know, it's like caring about somebody. You start noticing what's wrong with them that day and you say, hey, are you all right? I think we need to say that to the whole country and then we start talking to each other like we're doing right now. Uh, in my second book, I've moved out across America and did the same thing in a different way. So uh, I think a lot of it's what we're doing right now. It's camaraderie. It's dis it's discussing what we love about this place and then trying to get more people to care. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just growing, growing the tribe, growing the tribe of who we are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, Steve, you mentioned that uh, noticing the changes over time, uh, you know, for us, maybe having fished here for a couple of years, uh, you, you fishing this area for 20 years, what could you tell us about how it's changed over your time here? Oh, Incredibly so. And I'm gonna keep coming back to that question that I don't think I did a good enough job for you on. <laughs> if you look at these if you look at the Texas Hill Country, one thing you're gonna see is that this is where some species of trees and animals, this is the furthest most east or west they come. So you're gonna have sycamore trees and and of course the rivers are different, different rivers have different tree structures. You're gonna have to different animals. Uh you have Eastern trees in the canyons of Los Maples that are not found anywhere else. But here's what I'm t I would share with you. Um, some of the places I used to fish are gone now, as in dried up and under the ground. Yeah. So there's a place on the Sabinal where I originally had told family that's where I wanted my ashes to be. It had a waterfall and a giant boulder. I used to have lunch on the boulder and then I would fly fish off the top of it. There was a couple of nice pools, and I could watch the Guadalupe bass and the, and what we Texans call perch, even though they're not. They're, they're sunfish. Uh, right? Set, very true. Set, very true. Set our listeners straight, Steve. <laughs> Don't hold back. I'm just saying we all do. We all do. We all call I have to explain to people that come from out of state, we, we call that a perch. We call that prairie a pasture. We call that pond a tank. Get it right. So... <laughs> Uh, oh, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. But but I, I I point that out because that place has been gone for 15 years. Yeah. That's dried up. It's just white rock. Uh, the wildlife I used to see there has changed. So I don't know if you've noticed, but there's way more frequent Mexican birds up this way that used to be a rare thing to see. Mm. Uh, I've seen... Uh, a lot of changes. You know, as fly fishermen, we see the aquatic stuff. So notice where the frogs are and where they're not. Yeah. I mean, those things tell you what's going on. That that tells you. So I've seen a lot of change, including whole rivers that are disappearing. So in this book, Casting Forward, you, you'll see that there are certain chapters where I'm, even one where I'm flying over a river, and you can see where it just disappears into the rock for a whole mile where it used to be water, but you can't have this many hungry faucets, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just what it is. Yeah. So, um, and there's one chapter in this book where people will realize that when I get to the river, the entire river is gone. 
mm. but it's still a chapter. So uh, there's no fishing in that chapter, obviously. There's no water <laughs> left. So I still had a really good time. Yeah. Uh, what What is your favorite Hill Country River? And why? You, you know I'm not going to tell you places, right? No, no, we don't want places. <laughs> we don't. No, no specifics. We, no, we did. Just we, we, I want you to send me the Onyx coordinates. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the kind of answer I do when people ask me, uh, "Did you catch anything there?" So, or, oh, oh, any luck? I always tell them this: I'm lucky to be alive. <laughs> I'm lucky to be here on a beautiful day. Yeah. No, I would have to say this: between two rivers here, um, I, and they're very, very different. I love the Llano. Mm-hmm. Love the South Llano, uh, and of course that's up in the the uh, Llano Uplift, which is up, the geology is totally different than most of the the hill country. That's all volcanic, and I love the Guadalupe. But when people speak of the Guadalupe here, they usually mean the tailwater fishery that has trout. No, nope. Upper Guad. I do not. I am in the Upper Guad. Yeah, in secret quiet places, and I've got <laughs> one that. In 20 years, I saw one other angler there once, and I thought, what are you doing with my wife? (laughs) 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 You understand? You understand? You get the point? Yes. Absolutely. What are you you doing standing in my river? (laughs) Guadalupe, uh, you know, the, the... the cypress trees, just the whole beauty of that river. But in the Nalano is a totally different animal. and But it also is just an amazing place. Those are my two. Um, but I so did 21 in the book. 21 different rivers or 21 just different spots? Uh, 21 different rivers and streams. Gotcha. Mm. One pond. Which we'll say it. One tank. <laughs> so so your I know your book is divided up by uh, uh, rivers. I'm about halfway through it right now. If you were, if our listeners were like, I wanted to open the book to, uh, or maybe your, what is your personal favorite story in the book? Oh, um, gosh, you, you ask these questions that need one answer and there's not one. <laughs> so uh, my first, my first thing that's I'll okay. say is you I can... should have said, I should have thrown another river in there and that's the devil's river. So I would say my favorite chapter is devils, which is at the end of the book. Um, and the shortest chapter is also the deepest in and that's the um, Joshua Creek. Mm. That's a very short chapter. And an adaption of that was in Trout Magazine. Uh, but I would say my favorite is definitely Devils. And the Devils River, if y'all have fished that or if you haven't, you should. It's a very special place. Yeah. We need to do a that's It's definitely on your list. Yeah. We haven't yeah. been out there yet, though. I was supposed to go hey, over the summer. Has anybody been there? I have not hot. been there yet. Yeah. I I reserved camping and stuff over the summer uh, back for, I guess it was in July. And uh, the weekend before, we just went out to um, Garner, and it was miserable. And then I checked out our actual camping site at Devil's, and I said no, because there was no shade yeah. in our camp area. Mm-hmm. No. When you said July, you can't. You, you yeah, only I, I go quickly, there if, I if, um, quickly bit the bullet if, if, if and if just you said you can keep my do money. Do want to die? Yeah. <laughs> do you want to die? Yeah. No. Um, so I have. A so question. I did fish it once during a hot month, and yeah, go on. 
uh, something I learned in Africa that, that I'm sure looked really strange is have an umbrella with you. <laughs> for sun or for like a crazy all of a sudden monsoon? Sun. No, for for the sun. Yeah. I have walked across the desert to go fly fishing with an umbrella open. I thought, who's going to see me out here? I've got shade. Yep. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm telling you, they do that in Africa, and it's, it makes sense. Carry your tree with you. <laughs> Best way to make it. Um, yeah, so I was going to you, – um, you mentioned that your second book is a little bit more national-based. So how did you approach this one differently than your, your first book? Okay, so the first book – obviously is focused on the Texas Hill country and it's mostly me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes my daughter's fishing with me. The second book has uh, the focus is on native fish of tech of the, of the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what really brought me there, the fish brought me to the place, but I'm writing about the place through the eyes of the people I'm fishing with. So I, I was fishing with Ted Williams off the coast of, of Cape Cod uh, the book actually starts with me and uh, Chris Wood, the president of Trout Unlimited. We're fishing in the Potomac right close to the White House and the Capitol building on the dirty end. The end of the second book is at the clean end with Dustin Witcherman of Trout Unlimited. And we're fishing the places where we've cleaned it up and there's beautiful brook trout. And and in between, I'm taking the reader uh, down to St. Croix with Bob White and Lisa White um, uh, we 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 end up in the deserts in Nevada, up into the uh, the River of No Return wilderness area, um, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah. You get the picture. Yeah. And each time I'm with someone who is really involved in conservation or some area of that in that area, and this is their home, and I have them take me to their places. Yeah chasing these native native fish sometimes we're you know i was with kirk deer up in colorado and we hiked nine miles at ten thousand six hundred feet to get to this pond so this lake so we could fish for greenbacks and um, that was both beautiful and brutal yeah i bet so um yeah it was both beautiful and brutal yeah so that's also another favorite chapter in the second book because his dog who is an amazing dog named Maya was the star of that show. And I will not tell this story. You'll have to read it. Yeah. So, um, and you finished the fully just, finished the second book, she, right? She cannot. Yes. Yeah, the second book is in the process of being published with lions. Mm-hmm. And the third book I have started. Um, so it is a series casting forward the first one. And, um, Casting onward the second one, and I'm not going to say the name of the third one because then everybody will know where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) But y'all are going to like it. Oh, yeah. uh, And we were talking earlier that uh, I'm a lot further down the runway than y'all are. So uh, I'm not wasting any time. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 People say, how do you do all this? I just do it. Yeah. You just you just do it. You just do it. Yeah. That's life? how I hunted Africa. That's how I've done everything. Just do it. Eric, people are always going to tell you, you can't do that. Just do it. Yeah. And that, that's also what my writing's about too. You know, go, go for life. Get it, get going. Yeah. Um, I got a, maybe a different question. What would you, 
what kind of advice would you give maybe a new fly fisherman? Advice or a vice? Advice. Because it sounded like you said, what kind of vice would you give to a fly fisherman? I was like, okay, we're learning the flying time. So. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'm qualified to decide what kind of vice they should have. <laughs> um, though in my... In my criminal justice days, I was in charge of vice for a while, which was kind of fun to say when people would ask, what do you do for a living? I'd say, oh, I'm a drug dealer and a, and a pimp. Uh, <laughs> I, was in charge, I was in charge of the vice department. So, uh, no, to get back to your question, um, first of all, I'm no expert. and We've, we've cleared that up. I'm a, I'm a writer that fly fishes, but my advice is have fun. Don't worry about um, I made a joke with myself. I remember being on the Lano once and I was having a great day where I, where I willed that line to go. It went, I caught fish after fish. And then a family of four parked on the bridge and started staring at me. And I think I hooked a tree in the next cast. <laughs> uh, I would tell beginners, just have fun. The other thing I would say is do what I've been doing for a long time. Find a lot of people that know more than you and go fish with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know? If you're a humble human being, which I hope you are, because I am, <laughs> I'm always learning. So I fish with y'all. I'm going to be learning a ton from you. That's oh, yeah. that's good with me. So I hope I answered that for you pretty well. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. that was great. Definitely. Surround yourself with good people and learn from them. And when you make a mistake, you learn from it. No big deal. Yeah. The fish don't mind. Yeah. Um, hey, Ian, did you have any questions? Uh, that you wanted to ask? Yeah, I was. You wanted I was to just talk gonna, about Africa. I do want to talk. <laughs> would that be okay? If we talked a little bit about. Uh, we yeah. Could you talk a little bit about Africa? Maybe. Um, uh, I never. I haven't fished it yet. You haven't. Okay. I was gonna say. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about just uh, how? Yeah, like kind of. You you were kind of talking about how what fishing means to you and like how it's. Uh, how because i can kind of resonate with that i started fishing at a very difficult time in my personal life and it was very meaningful to me so would you mind talking about that like being out in nature and how that is just helpful in life and perspective and things like that sure that's a great question too y'all have great questions um the first thing i'll say is uh one of the other things that that tripped off me writing this book is my my father dying and uh, I actually felt kind of guilty about how I felt when my father died. And, and that is because in my life, in the Marines and other, and, and other things I've done, I've seen a lot of death. And um, not to get too dramatic, but I've seen an awful lot of violent death. And I was, I, I got through all that. You know, I just kept moving. When my dad died, it was like the world stopped. And I bring that up because he's the one that started me fishing. And uh, we had got through many tough times together and he taught me uh, that being out in nature and fishing was a great way to keep yourself grounded and connected. And that really is such an important thing. I want to see us take more kids out and get them engaged in fishing, hunting, hiking, whatever works for them, paddling, whatever, teach them respect, teach them empathy the things that we seem to be losing. Um, so for me, fly fishing, being out in nature, 
it's truly life-saving. Even when I'm writing, I don't write unless I can at least look out my window at the bird feeder. And sometimes I just take my computer out on a bench in the middle of the woods, and that's where I write. Um, so fly fishing, it sounds so cliche, but to me, everything in life comes back to fly fishing. You can learn so much for those people that decide to read Casting Forward, you're going to see I spent time just uh, – well, I'm going to get off track here a little bit. I recently heard from someone who read my book, lives up in the Pittsburgh area. He has some serious health issues. And he told me how the passage about dealing with wind knots and snagging a tree and, and learning patience, how it really helped him getting through his – that's – you can learn so much – fishing beside how to tie a knot how to make a cast how to catch a fish um rivers teach us so i don't know if i'm doing a good job of answering your question no, no I, that was perfect i yeah, think you exactly. are i think a lot of it's people being zeroed in it's being in the zone i think a lot of people can identify with the sentiment because i can myself of how being outdoors and getting into hunting and fishing has helped through hard times. It just, it's a way to ground yourself. So I think a lot of us can actually identify with your same sentiment in saying that. Yeah. yeah and we're all different and we've talked about hunting a little bit. I mean, I respect the animals I've hunted. Um, I was in, uh, we'll get a little off track here to Africa, but I was hunting Kudu yeah. in, <laughs> Ian. in, uh, in <laughs> Oh, I was but, laughing. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, uh, It's okay. I'll, I, won't, I won't spend much time on this, but I was hunting Kudu in Namibia and the Bushman trackers had said to me through the translator that he says, you know, the Kudu shed tears when you kill them. And, um, and mine did. And I tell that story because uh, I actually published a story in Texas Sporting Journal called The Life and Death of a Noble Pig for a warthog I killed there. I think if we, again, pay attention. So when I catch a fish, uh, you may think this is silly, but I thank it. Um, I treat it with respect. I set it loose and I say, aren't you a handsome guy? Get out there and get big. <laughs> so, um, And there's nothing wrong with killing and eating a fish that's you know, that's uh, not endangered. Uh, but I'm loving this part of life where I turn everything free. Yeah. Uh, in the second book, I was off Cape Cod fly fishing with Ted Williams, and we were fishing for blues and stri stripers. And these seals kept popping up because we were catching one striper, one bluefish after another. And we'd turn them loose, get them off the hook, and dump them back in. And the seals kept looking at us like, why are you giving your food away? <laughs> so... <laughs> but, well i couldn't really explain it steve um i were we're at about at time um but where okay. can where can people buy your book i can say amazon because i literally just bought it while we were on this call <laughs> <laughs> you know so um so the book is through lions press so obviously you can get it through lions press but it, every major uh, booksellers going to have it. Uh, I had a lucky situation or a wonderful problem because the first printing sold out way ahead of time. Uh, so some of the smaller booksellers never got their order, but that's being rectified now. Uh, Amazon, uh, I'm supposed to tell you all these people do it. 
that's the thing I'm supposed to say, and that's true. But Amazon, I've noticed if I was buying it, I notice right now that they've got a few dollars off on it. <laughs> and a few dollars is uh, buy you some flies. <laughs> so uh, Amazon's the easiest. They bought a really large amount of the book. Uh, but, you know, Barnes & Noble has it. Books a Million has it. Indie Books has it. Uh, Sporting Classics is selling it. But Amazon's the easiest way to go. And I think it has like a... Do you have a website, Steve, where people can uh, learn more about your writing? Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, the website is just steveramirezauthor.com. And right now it's it has excerpts from Casting Forward in it. So you can read pieces of it. I'll let you know that this is, um, if you haven't read it, it's poetic literature writing. It's So if what you're looking for is I uh, hooked me a big one and... And uh, chucked him into the air and took his picture while he was flying. You're not going to get that from me. So uh, it's it's poetic, thoughtful writing. So uh, at any rate, no, oh, that's great. And that's, uh, we we will link all that information. So we'll give people a direct link in the podcast notes to to go on and buy your book. And we'll put a couple of the places where your book is sold on there to give people some options. Um. So, oh, I really, I really hope people enjoy it and and reach out to me. And I've been posting people's pictures on my site, holding my book because that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I need to send you a picture. <laughs> we, we'll we'll do a honey hole picture yes, when we you all do. four yeah. when we all four get it. We'll uh, get it in. We'll uh, all hold our books up and send you a picture. Oh yeah. I need a honey hole picture, yeah. and then I need like oh. <laughs> I need to explain what honey hole is. <laughs> we're we're still uh, we're still building it. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it that way. I mentioned to a non-fisher person. Oh, okay. Well, a non-angler, they went, "What's a honey hole?" Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds oh, like. That's, so true. <laughs> that's well, Steve. I like what you said, Steve. Oh, that go was ahead, Ian. thank you for that. That was like the meaning. I was going to say, I really like what you said about like the the why and the meaning of it that was really powerful just like the it's not about because i run into this all the time like people wanting to they you know they want to catch the biggest fish and they say when you fly a fish you're going after the biggest fish but for me it's about the experience as well so that was really powerful thank you for saying that just like no thank you for asking and i know a lot of people are gonna think i'm odd but uh some of my favorite fish are really tiny yeah same (laughs) they're quite yeah but they're absolutely beautiful, and I climbed up into a canyon at 9,000 feet to find them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, Steve, it's, it's hey, been, been my honor. pleasure. Y'all are a lot of fun. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's great to spend some time with you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. You're we'll, welcome. We'll have you back on for sure to talk about hunting in africa (laughs) which we could spend more time we we can do that we can do that and we'll we'll have to talk about coffee Uh, yes yeah we'll do uh oh the coffee in africa is amazing is it oh (laughs) so i know we're out of time but i had my first kenyan coffee in kenya in a tent camp on the maasai mara so oh with lions all around me oh man Thank you, Steve. Okay, y'all. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. Have a good night. Take care. We'll see you later, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. So now that was the interview. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. 
And uh, I definitely did. I thought Steve was great. Yeah. Really mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed our conversation. And go buy his book. Yes. Oh, yeah. Go buy his book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or uh, Books A Million or any anywhere you book, can get your anywhere you can get, get your, your hands on if you want to support more local bookstore try to find it there if not amazon will have it at your house and how long cliff since you just bought a copy it says that it'll be here next week next week next they didn't have prime for it i don't have prime oh, oh so everybody else will have it in two days. yeah so yeah, everyone probably. else will have it by the time they our podcast releases and they order it they'll still have it before you they might <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, guys. All right, guys. We'll see y'all next week. For Ranger. (laughs) 